0: Welcome to SCN2A Insights, bringing you the latest research and clinical updates on SCN2A and genetic epilepsy from around the world.
1: So welcome to this episode of SCN2A Insights and welcome again, Chris.
0: Thank you.
1: So this episode, we will follow up with our prior episode where we interviewed John Spiro from the Simons Foundation. And who are we talking to in this episode, Chris?
0: In this episode, we speak to Jennifer Trenagel, who has been at Simons for many years and is across many of the programs that they run, including the SCN 2A Registry.
1: So thanks a lot, Jennifer, for joining us on the podcast.
0: Oh, my
2: pleasure. I'm glad to be able to talk
0: to you. So Jennifer, can you just introduce yourself, what your role is at Simons and also highlight how long you've been there? I am the the Senior Project Manager for Simons Searchlight. Uh, which
2: was formerly known as Simon's VIP for many years as well. Uh, my my primary role is sort of uh, to to shepherd all of the the research activities from inception to completion. Uh, make sure that working with uh, our team um, on lots of the logistics and uh, overall supportive role. Um, I started with the foundation in twenty ten specifically um, uh, on Simon's VIP, um, and so that's gone through the initial phase of uh, much more of an in-person multi-day assessment type study where participants were having to go into clinical centres, um, and now um, a much broader scope of the, the online registry model.
0: What is Simon's Searchlight mission?
2: Yeah, so um, it might be helpful. I'll give you a little bit of background of how we started with Simon's VIP slash Simon Searchlight, um, and why we started. um, because I think that really informs the mission of of where we are today. Um, So back in 2010, when we started, we had been involved in a previous uh, cohort called the Simon's Simplex Collection, uh, which was collecting individuals uh, data um, for families that had um, one child on the autism spectrum um, and, Uh, one child without, um, and looking into the genetics behind that, so really doing a deep dive into the phenotype, uh, clinical presentation, uh, but then at the same time doing genetic sequencing to see what was popping up as the most frequent genetic findings. Um, So one of those findings that came out of the Simon Simplex collection was 16P11.2 deletion and duplication syndrome. Um, so the idea was in taking the autism spectrum, uh, which is extremely heterogeneous, um, and seeing if we were to look specifically at a particular genetic group um, within that, um, if we would be able to come to answers more clearly and uh, hopefully looking at a more homogenous uh, group of those individuals. So, so the original idea was to really take a genetics first approach to the research rather than starting with the clinical presentation. From there, obviously, in the past, you know, many years since we started, there have been so many more genetic changes that have been associated with autism and other neurodevelopmental disorders. And so our list of genetic findings that we've been interested in studying has grown and grown and grown. And where we see our role and our mission Currently, is is to continue to try to be a catalyst and to accelerate scientific progress into these genetic dis- disorders, specifically by trying to make things as easy as possible for researchers to access information that we've collected in a standardized high-quality manner, um, as well as uh, biospecimens we've we've also collected and any other resources um, and just the underpinning of. Having a structure there to to collect information that's important, um, so so really it's it's meant to be a supporting role and the overall in line with the overall mission of the of the Simons Foundation really to to speed research into these conditions and and be as open and transparent with all of this information to get it as to as many scientific minds as possible um, to get to get answers in the end for all the families.
1: Although Chris and I's specific interest is in SCN2A. How many genes yes. is Simon Searchlight looking at?
2: Currently, we have quite a, a large list of genes. Um, it's uh, it's close to 220 different genetic conditions. Um, that being said, though, that is our list of of genes that are eligible to join Simon Searchlight, and we have a a, a group of highly engaged um, patient advocacy organizations that I would say is closer to. 25 genes where we really have made some meaningful progress in recruiting individuals and, and collecting data from them, but we fully expect that over time um, the number of groups that we engage with is going to continue to fill out and, and grow exponentially.
1: So having a registry is one of the functions that Simon Searchlight's doing for genes. Just describe for us a bit what's involved in a registry and you know, for example, ESC2A registry.
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Um, and I know that many groups are interested in starting a registry, and I think that you can look at a registry at many different levels. At the very basic level, it could be a registry of contact information for any given researcher. Um, At the other end of that spectrum, you could have a a full-blown natural history study where you are collecting information online and also in person. Um, the Simons Searchlight Registry really is a blend of that in that it it really aims to collect not only um, basic identification information and contact information for future research projects that come up that we can invite families to, but also um, a meaningful set of clinical, uh, medical history information, um, other standardized measures as much as possible to look into the behavioral components uh, that individuals are, are experiencing as well as you know basic demographic information. We also have the capability of collecting of the genetic uh, the clinical genetic reports data and extracting information from those uh, for researchers Um, as well as uh, we you know where families have access to medical records we can upload those into our system Um, and we're we're constantly looking for other avenues of other types of data we can collect I think the most important part of the registry is not just the the baseline information, but knowing that we're following individuals over time to really be able to answer the important questions for many families of what is this, what does the trajectory look like for for any given condition? And what can, you know, my family expect um, once we get the initial diagnosis?
1: Yeah. And on that note, what's it look like for a family that wants to participate in the registry? You know, they're interested, they want to sort of share their data. What's that process look like and how do they go about it?
2: Yeah, we try to make it as easy as possible um, and are always looking for feedback from families uh, on, on how to do that. Um, the way that any given family would currently participate in the research is uh, everything is online um, as far as uh, signing up. In registration. Uh, so they would go to the website, there's a button that says join us. And um, once they do that, they're led through a series of screens that provide information about the project and the research uh, behind it. There's a consent form online that they're able to read and, and sign. Um, and then it leads them into um, the process of uploading their their lab report. Mostly that's a very important component um, to make sure that when we share data with researchers, we can guarantee that they actually are um, getting. Uh, you know, comparing apples to apples in terms of the genetic diagnosis. Once they get through all of the basic registration information and upload their lab report, they can then uh, go to their dashboard where they will see different surveys um, that they can fill out. Uh, um, And then at the same time, they will be contacted by us to schedule a phone conversation with one of our um, genetic counselors who will talk to them over the phone to get a detailed medical history, uh, which is very helpful because, um, these, we have a standard, uh, you know, uh, several very talented genetic counselors that help us out and they can, they have the opportunity to ask a lot of, um, uh, follow up questions of families. And that I, we find that that really increases the, the consistency of the data and the data quality, um, and how the medical history is reported. Um, So once they get done with all of their baseline surveys and medical history, um, participation can be their yearly follow-up. We have newsletters, we have um, webinar opportunities, and we also have the opportunity to participate in other studies that we hear about from external researchers that we can alert families to if they're interested in even doing more.
1: So the families completed that process, they've uploaded their data... At the back end, then what happens? What does Simon Searchlight do once that data is then uploaded?
2: So we have um, a team of analysts that then will take the data, uh, review it. We have a set of data quality procedures that we go through. um, And then the data sets will be released to an area of the Simon's Foundation um, platform called Safari Base. So it's SF. ARI Safari Base Simon's Foundation Autism Research Initiative is what the acronym stands for, um, and that is actually the portal by which researchers will go on to apply to access the data and the biospecimens. Um, and once they get approved, they can download those and order order their samples. One thing that we do ask is, um, as part of the agreement, is that any new data that's generated by the researcher gets um, gets deposited back into the the uh, Simon Searchlight repository just so that the overall, the knowledge base can continue to grow.
1: Yeah, that sounds like a really great collaborative type of relationship. So you've got information to share, but share information back the other way so that everybody benefits. That, that sounds great. If people are looking to collaborate with uh, Simon Searchlight using some of the registry data, what's that look like from a researcher point of view? What do they need to do?
2: One of the aspects that we, we really are looking forward to using frequently in Simon Searchlight is something called research match. Um, so that's where, when, when we look at collecting data across the various communities that we study in Simon Searchlight, one of the benefits of, of this whole enterprise is really being able to look across different genes that may be related in different ways, whether it's um, a biological uh, mechanism, um, some sort of other relationship between the genes and their function, their effects. Um, So it's very important to us to have a consistent set of data that's collected. Now, what we hope is by the researchers looking through that data, this will help percolate additional questions, areas that they want to do deep dives in, um, and say they want to have a very specific survey or uh, other research opportunity specific to SCN2A, then they would be able to access the research match component of the project where they could do something that's very specific to that genetic disorder. And then uh, we, through our system, would send that out to the SCN2A community to collect that data. Um, The data then would become part of the the Simon Searchlight Registry automatically, um, as well as being shared directly with the researcher. So in terms of looking forward to collaborative opportunities, ideally we would be able to seed the researcher's base knowledge of the condition and then also help facilitate them do future research projects with, with fewer barriers.
1: Yeah, and there's nice examples of that. And one of the SCN2A examples we're aware of is the natural history study that's run out of Melbourne but running globally and the collaboration that they've formed with Simon Searchlight and the way that's going to add to each of those databases.
2: Yeah, I think it's important for families because it does take so much time, and we recognize that it takes a lot of time to fill out this information and get on the phone with us. And if they're working with multiple researchers, I think there's a sense of need from the families to know that these different places are talking to each other and sharing information, and that that it's all gonna be put together in the different pieces of the puzzle with with lots of different people uh, contributing.
0: So, Jennifer, I just wanted to ask, sort of circling back a little bit to access for families, um, you recently introduced Spanish um, so other families can access who don't speak English because your programs are global and most of our rare groups are global and there's not many. So having as many families being able to access is important. What's What's your aims with access for other families?
2: Yeah, we are so excited to have gotten to the point to launch um, our first language, uh, other than English. Um, It's something we've been wanting to do for a very long time because we recognize that these conditions are so extremely rare that you really need the power of finding individuals um, all across the world to to power the research um, and, and contribute. And that we definitely recognize that there's also a desire From families all over the world to participate. So um, we've we've chosen several initial languages. Spanish was the first to to reach the the starting gate there, Uh, but we already have uh, three additional languages uh, lined up to to launch. And, And much of that is driven by the patient advocacy group organizations telling us, you know, where they see the need. You know, we have a uh, an engaged group in Germany that really wants to participate or, you know, we've obviously heard about um, groups in Spain and uh, also, you know, in the Netherlands. And so I think that it really helps uh, when we're partnering with families to know where the needs are. Uh, Cause we, we do want to um, engage. We found that the the best way to do in- recruitment is um, through family organizations. And so when there are those organizations in other, other areas, we, want to try to get as many of them participating as possible.
0: So can you share some of the success stories where um, Simons have shared data?
2: SCN2A specifically, we've um, had many researchers request the data. Um, some have looked uh, more at in in very detail um, in a very detailed way all of the different information, for example, about the medical comorbidities and how that might compare to data that they've already collected within their own lab. I think that one of the things that's, that's really important is the network of families across the world, but also to really be encouraging networks of researchers to work together because it doesn't always follow naturally that research labs are reaching out to other research labs looking uh, at the same condition unless there's some opportunity to do so. And I think maybe using a um, a common source through the data set or the samples um, and then having conversations about it, whether those start at actual in-person meetings with the patient advocacy groups um, that are very powerful in, in bringing researchers together for a common cause. So I think that the collaboration both from patient advocacy groups in different countries as well as research lab groups in a, in, in various locations is, is extremely powerful. Another success story that we're, we're just starting down the road on, but that was recognized within the past year or two is... Seeing what other resources the the research community would need, and how we might be able to play a part in that. And one thing was, um, many of the researchers were interested in looking at induced pluripotent stem cells or iPSCs. And one of the challenges is number one, it's extremely labor intensive and expensive to generate even a single cell line from a single patient in this type of cell line. Uh, but also that if they're done in different labs with different protocols in how they cre- actually create the cells, it can be difficult to, to compare those across different labs if they're, if, different, if they're being created under different conditions. So one way that we're trying to um, collaborate and provide resources for these researchers is to create a central repository of these cell lines that are done in a consistent way and that can be shared, not only within a genetic group, um, disorder group, but also across different related um, disorder groups. And and I think not only, we've not only been able to talk to researchers about trying to get priorities, but then also getting down to the level of which variants within a a genetic change uh, that they would be interested in studying. And we've even started getting questions from researchers that, are looking for specific genetic variants that we don't yet have um, a sample for, but we have the ability to go out, do outreach to families who are already joined Simon, who have already joined Simon Searchlight to get those samples collected for researchers.
1: So that's really interesting work. And another important player in this space is the pharmaceutical industry. And, you know, they're important in terms of getting treatments to market. Sometimes they can be hard for patient organizations to deal with, you know, they're big behemoths. Can Simon Searchlight play a role or is there an ability to do that collaborative research and link those groups together?
2: We actually um, have started in this space um, with SCN2A uh, fairly early on actually. I think one of the the benefits of having the Simon's Foundation involved is that we really are a neutral player just wanting to see overall progress into um, the genetics, into these conditions. Uh, So One, uh, we were approached by Roche Pharmaceutical, who was very interested in looking at the loss of function and gain of function, different variants within SCN2A. And they had proposed a project uh, that was going to be an in-person clinic um, visits. uh, I think it was multi-day type, so very deep phenotyping, including EEG. And one of the things that was very important and that Roche definitely agreed to is the importance of sharing that information back and making that part of the pre-competitive space where we're all trying to learn um, from that and I think that was a, a really good powerful message to be able to send is that um, even for pharmaceutical or biotech who ultimately um, might you know are, are in the for-profit world there definitely is a, a collaborative space where we can work together and help. Um, So that that data was shared back to Simon Searchlight, it's available for any researcher who's interested to download and look at in more detail. And we really hope that there's going to be many more opportunities to do that in the future.
1: Yeah, that's really great collaborative work and a nice example of how you can bring those different worlds together for everybody's benefit. Absolutely. So congratulations on the work that you're doing and what you've been able to guide Simon Searchlight to be able to do over the last 10 years with your work there.
2: Yes, it's been a a wonderful experience. I'm really looking forward to to what the next 10 is going to look like.
1: So that was a really interesting interview, Chris, and really brought out a lot of the work that's being done by uh, Simon's Foundation and Simon Searchlight. And also interesting to, again, hear that difference between the registry and the natural history study and how they're a bit of a continuum. And by expanding the database of what Simon Searchlight's doing, it really is providing a very rich resource for researchers.
0: Yeah, and it's important that there's that bilateral sharing of data. Uh, it's very important to the patient community that that information is being shared uh, and that we don't have to overlap providing that information.
1: Yeah, and it absolutely saves a lot of time in what we all want is development of treatments, development of a cure for these rare and devastating disorders uh, and providing these platform type of technologies like Simon Searchlight and the Simons Foundation are doing is a really important part of that. If you want to hear more episodes of the podcast, subscribe via any podcast app and follow us on social media, Facebook or Twitter at sen 2 a Australia. Thanks a lot, Chris.
0: You're welcome. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.